Imagine you are out for a walk to get some fresh air, or just grabbing a ride to the local hangout. Now what if that was the last time that anyone ever saw you again? While this thought is dark and disturbing, this is the reality for eight young women who were senselessly murdered in the late 1960s. This is the story of the Michigan murders. Welcome to the Caligo Effect podcast. Joining me today for my very first podcast is Kara from Blonde Unicorn Marketing and who grew up from where some of our story is taking place today. Kara is going to tell us a little bit of history about Ypsilanti. Yes, I am from Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, Ypsilanti is a really cool place. It goes by Ipsy for short. Um, it was founded as a trading post in the early 1800s. It was originally called Woodruff's Grove. There's a river splitting town. On the east side of the river was Woodruff's Grove. On the left side, or excuse me, west, <laughs> was uh, Ypsilanti, which is named after a Greek war hero, Demetrios Ypsilanti, which is kind of weird because as the city was being formed and named, he was a Greek hero at the same time. You would think that it would have been like, 100 plus years beforehand, but no, it's at the same time. So at some point, the both sides of the river joined and came together as one community known as Ypsilanti. And really important to the story is that Eastern Michigan University is the college in town. It was founded uh, very early on in like the mid 1800s. And it was, I want to say it was like Michigan Normal College, something yeah. like that. I don't remember the exact name. But yeah, that kind of speeds us up to a little history of Ypsilanti. So that is where our podcast takes place today. Um, I wanted to start out with a quote from the gentleman who did these murders that I thought was very interesting. Um, it goes, if a person wants something, he alone is the deciding factor on whether or not to take it, regardless of what society thinks may be right or wrong. If that person takes a gun and holds it to somebody, it is up to him to decide whether or not to take the other's life. The point is, it's not society's judgment that's important, but the individual's own choice and will and intellect. What's wild is he wrote that in one of his college papers. I know. At Eastern. Wild! Okay, sorry, keep going, keep going. This is wild. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, just reading that quote really gave me chills and, like, thinking of, like, some of the things that he did that we will get into. It was just crazy. Like, and you would read this, and because we know what he did, you're like, wow, like, this guy, off the rails. But I guess the professor at the time didn't think anything of it and was like, oh, he's so smart and intellectual. Like, no, psycho. Thinking in depth is what I think he was thinking. Yes. He's a deep thinker. He's such a deep thinker. So philosophical. No, psycho. So I would rather highlight the lives of the victims and everything. Yes. So we're going to kind of start with giving the background on some of the victims and yeah. all of that while we go. Because, like, no one really talks about them and what happened to them and who they were. Correct. So I tried to do a little bit of background knowledge. So the first victim we'll be talking about today is Mary Flazar. Mm -hmm. Kara corrected me on the pronunciation. Yes. So, nailed it. Um, she was born in December of 1968 in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So she was born in the area where... 1946. She... You are correct. Yeah. 1946. 46. Yeah. Um, she grew up in Willis, Michigan in a home that her father had built. She lived with her mom and dad along with three sisters and three brothers. That is 
way too many children in one house, in my opinion. Seven kids in one house? No, thank you. You know what? That was just a different time. Like, they had a ton of kids back then. I don't know. It's too many. <laughs> yeah, she lived with them until she went off to college, where she attended the University of Michigan for accounting. Mm-hmm. Um, when she went to the Eastern Michigan University, she lived with a roommate in Ypsilanti, and on July 9th, 1967, Mary decided to go for a walk to get some fresh air in the summer heat. Um, this would be the last time that she was seen alive. Oh. And I'm just thinking with all the hot temperatures we've been having recently, like, I, I go out on walks to cool down. Yeah. That's just terrifying. Yeah. Um, and, like, I know the area around campus really well. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, neighborhoods. Just neighborhoods with really nice homes built in, like, the late 1800s, early 1900s. You wouldn't think anything of going for a walk by yourself. I used to walk around Ipsy by mm-hmm. myself in middle school. All the time. Yeah, no one ever thought of it. You just don't think of it. So, 24 hours after she left the apartment, her roommate reached out to her parents to report that she hadn't returned home. And at that time, her parents then contacted the police with the information that she had. But the police weren't really concerned. Because they thought, anybody in college could go out partying and it's going to take them some time to get back. Yeah, I don't think they took missing persons as seriously as they do now. I mean, even in some cases they do now, they don't take seriously. Like, sometimes you have to wait 24 hours, right? even though you know the person isn't out partying or doing something yeah. irresponsible. True story. Or, like, if they consider someone, like, a flight risk, like, they've run away before, they're like, oh, they'll come back, and you're like, no, like, this time is different. Yeah. Ugh. So her family knew she wasn't out partying or doing anything, so it was confirmed in her mind, in their minds, when they went to her house and all of her belongings were still there, like her wallet, her purse, keys... Anything she would need, it was all still in the apartment. Oh, that would, like, if I were her family, that would give me chills down my spine. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, the investigation that followed did not bring forth any information except for, like, one lead. Mary was seen by a neighbor to being approached by a driver in a blue-gray Chevrolet car. Hmm. Now, that was officially the last person to see her. Yeah. Um, okay. So, unfortunately, her body would go undiscovered for four weeks so, oh, in the so summer. So, that, so on August 7th, 1967, was when she was found. Yeah. She was found by some teenagers that were hanging out at an abandoned farmhouse about three miles from where she lived. Yeah. Um, when they, the teenagers heard a car door slam and then heard a car speed off. So, they were thinking, oh, someone's getting lucky. And they saw us mm. and they're driving away. And then you're like, no! So the boys went over to try and catch whoever it was and, like, kind of laugh at him. Yeah. When they came upon Mary's body. So I don't want to, like, ruin the story later on. <laughs> like, I'm not going to say it. I'm okay. Not gonna say it. I'm not going to ruin the story later on. We'll see if, if you connect some dots. <laughs> Her body was in advanced decomp when she was found. Oh, yeah, because it's been, like, a month. Yep. In, the, like, hot... Michigan summer, like, humidity, it's hot, bugs, she's at an abandoned barn, so, like, cats, dogs, Mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever wildlife is out there, yeah, like, yes, Um, she had been stabbed in a frenzy of 30 to 40 times, which is just bananas. That's horrific. Yeah, and and in trying to conceal her identity, they removed one of her arms, one of her hands, and some feet. Yeah, not surprised, so. which is terrible to say. Ugh. Like, <laughs> Her, can you imagine, though, 30 to 40 times, and, like, if the first few don't, like, kill you, you're, like, just... In pain and bleeding and... All that pain. I, like, hopefully she, like, went into shock and just didn't feel it, but that's horrific. Absolutely horrific. 
Yeah, her body was only able to be identified by some dental records and then by her mom, by some of the belongings that were near her body. Oh, that's terrible. I, I just can't imagine not being able to, like, see a body and being like, that's my daughter, you know? That's just crazy. Her poor mother. Oh, no. Mm. So the police also determined that her body had been moved three times mm-hmm. while on the property. Mm-hmm. She was originally placed on a pile of bottles by a box elder tree. And then she was moved about five feet from where the body originally laid, and then about three more feet not soon before she was found. Yeah. So there were theories that she had had some sexual assaults Mm -hmm. happen to her, but due to the state of decomposition, there was not really a way for them to tell. So this is a little bit of a weird part of the story I thought was very interesting. Um, Two days after her body was found... A young, handsome man showed up at the Moore funeral home where her body was being autopsied. And he asked for permission to take pictures. I did not know about this part. Of Mary's body, saying he was a friend of the family and he wanted something to remember her by. As someone that, like, has been hearing this story for, like, 20 plus years, I did not know this and I am horrified. The man was refused and he just left. Unfortunately, the mortuary employees were unable to to give a clear description of the gentleman that came in. They just knew he was handsome. But the receptionist did notice that it was a blue-gray Chevrolet. Oh, (laughs) golly. Her murder was thought to be an isolated incident up until victims were discovered later on. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost a year passed until Ypsilanti police were informed of a disappearance that rang very similar to Mary's case. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so I thought that was very interesting that he wanted to take photos. Which, like, as you get farther into the story, lines up with his character. Yes. Which, like, obviously, the listeners don't know, but we'll get there. And you'll be like, (laughs) yes, that makes sense. Because, psycho. The next victim that he had was Joan Sow. And she was born on December 1st, 1947 in Sheboygan County, (laughs) Wisconsin. Yeah. Fun fact, I was born in Sheboygan County, Wisconsin. Seriously? Yes. Awesome. I was born in Wisconsin. We moved around and we moved back to my mom's hometown, Ypsilanti, in the late 90s. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. I yeah, did not know that. Fun fact. So Joan was born to her parents, James and Sylvia. She grew up in Plymouth, Michigan, and had just moved to a house in Ypsilanti with a roommate in 1968, mm-hmm. just so she could be closer to EMU. Yeah, which will, like, make sense, because at the time, you would think about it. Like, if you're familiar with this area now, it's nothing to go from Plymouth to Ipsy. Mm-hmm. But in the 60s, most people didn't have their own vehicles. There's no public transportation between the two communities even now. So, yeah, it would just make sense to move closer. Which kind of leads to her disappearance and yeah, what happened. Yeah, which is terrible. Um, so, she was attempting to hitchhike on June 30th of 1968 in front of the student union at EMU. She was hitchhiking due to the fact that she missed a bus to Ann Arbor to go visit her boyfriend, Dale Schultz. Her boyfriend was actually AWOL from the military and was questioned about her disappearance and then was later found not to be a suspect. That's the right. I didn't know that her boyfriend was AWOL. Um, I knew that her boyfriend was in Ann Arbor and I knew that she had missed a bus, but I didn't know. Pulling out the facts, I don't know. I love it. So she was last seen getting into a late model red and white vehicle that had three other people in the car. Her roommate had notified police that she didn't return home that evening. So Joan's body was found about one week later in Ann Arbor by some construction workers 
Can you imagine just going to work one day and being like, do 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 do, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, we're off to construction work we go. Oh, there's body. It's terrible. I know. So um, and again, like a week. Yeah, it was later. a week. So thank went... goodness it's at least like December. Or no, yeah. no, this was also in June. Yeah. Okay, so it's hot. So it was a again. year later from the other one in yeah. June. Yeah. Okay. Um, like body decomposition decomposition in, in summer is awful weak and hot summer no thank you um so she w- was stabbed upwards of 40 times and her neck was slashed <sighs> so this person does a lot of overkill yeah 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 <laughs> so um she was sexually assaulted and her skirt was found around her neck a pathologist report noted that joan had been raped and had been murdered in a frenzy's attack with the knife um in Intriguingly, it was noted that she had been dead for a few days, and her body had only lay where it was, discovered for about 24 hours. So, again, he Mm. had moved the body around. It was also believed that she was killed elsewhere, and then her body was moved to this location. Yeah, that was his his thing. His thing. Um, Through investigation, cops learned that she was last seen on July 1st with a fellow student, John Norman Collins, a failing student at Eastern Michigan University. Collins was living... directly across the street from Joan. Um, He was questioned, and he said that he was with my mama at her house in Centerline, Michigan, Mm -hmm. just north of the Detroit border. The police took his alibi as, yeah, that's fine, because he was just such a nice, charming young man. Yep. At the time, police had not connected the two murders, but a quote from Lieutenant Eugene Studenmeyer of the Ann Arbor Police Department. This is the second case that we have had this like this in a year, and there are strange similarities between the two. A year earlier, a g- girl named Mary Lazar there you go. was stabbed to death just north of Ypsilanti. She suffered the same type of wounds, and her assailants never were apprehended. We can't tell until the assailants are apprehended if they have a chance to question them if they were connected. So, just like looking at this and thinking about it, so... My mom grew up in Ypsilanti. Mm-hmm. At this time, my oldest aunt was a college student at Eastern. Oh, my god! My grandmother worked at Eastern and, like, remembered him. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's crazy. Like, so I'm, like, just thinking about these poor women and that it, it could have been my family that went through this horrific thing. And it's terrible. So now we're going to talk about Jane Mixer. Um, Jane was born in 1946. Um, she was born in Muskegon, Michigan. She was an introspective law student at the University of Michigan. Sounds fancy. Yeah, I listened to a podcast on her, which I'll get into a little bit more. Ooh, she had a podcast on her. Nice. Yes. So, um, it was a really good listen. She was taking a ride to Muskegon via a travel board, which they had in the lower part of the college, okay. where pe- students would put up that they needed a ride somewhere, and if anybody was going that way, they'd get contacted, and then they would drive together. Yeah, I did that when I was at Northern, coming home. Probably shouldn't have done that now I think about it, but that's all right. Yeah, she was heading home for her mother's birthday. Um, On March 21st, 1969, Jane Mixer was 23 years old, and her body was found in a cemetery just inside of Wayne County, Michigan. Her body was found by a young boy and his mother. Yeah, and that cemetery is, like, down the road from my mom's house. Nice. Yeah! The 13-year-old schoolboy arrived home with a gift-wrapped present, the one for her mother. Upon questioning from his mother, he admitted that he had found it at the cemetery. His mother insisted that they go and return it. When they arrived at the cemetery is when they found her body covered in a yellow raincoat. (laughs) Jane's body was only found hours after a missing person's report had been put into police. She had been shot twice in the head at point-blank range with a twenty-two. She was fully clothed except for the shoes that were placed neatly beside her. 
Jane's murder was considered to have been committed by the same killer as Marion Joan for over 35 years. Until 2005. Oh, that's right. When it was determined that she was murdered by Gary Letterman, a former nurse. Letterman came to the attention of authorities 35 years later after a lab report found his DNA in her pantyhose. While she may have not been murdered by the co-ed killer, every victim deserves to have their story told. For a more in-depth story, please check out the Bitter Endings podcast, their very yeah. first episode. Yeah. Like, for so many years, that family didn't have the closure that they needed, and I'm happy they got that closure. Finally. I know, I like, thought it was really interesting. And cause... when you go and you look at pictures of that guy, you're like, Ugh. you're so, like, I don't know, you look like Grandpa. How could you do that to somebody? Yeah, he was 62 years old when he did it. Nasty. Yeah. So, after Jane's murder, that was pretty much the end to any long lengths of time between mm-hmm. murders. Um, the co-ed killer stepped up his game, and the attacks became more ferocious and higher frequency yes so our next victim is marilyn skelton she was born in march of 1953 she was born to her parents mr and mrs archie skelton and born in romulus michigan Mm -hmm. on march 24th 1969 at the age of 16 years old marilyn skelton was seen hitchhiking in front of the arborland mall i'm seeing a common theme with hitchhiking on this guy (laughs) yeah yeah and it's specifically washtenaw yeah so washtenaw Ave. Skelton had called one of her friends to pick her up from the McKinney Union at EMU, but when her friend arrived, she was nowhere to be found. The following day, her parents contacted the Waynes County Sheriff's Department to report their daughter missing. Missing flyers were printed and distributed to both Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti Police, Washtenaw, and Michigan State Police, because they all had dedicated detectives to find her, because they knew there was... A serial killer potentially on the loose before, I believe this is before serial killer was even a term. I think so. And unfortunately, on March 25th, Marilyn's body was found by construction workers. These poor construction workers in that area. I know, right? Like, they're just trying to make a living and finding poor women. So she was found on Pemberton Drive in Ann Arbor. I don't know if you know where that is. I do not know where that is. Her body was found only a quarter mile from where Joan's body was located. Marilyn had been beaten to death and her skull was completely shattered. Her body had deep wounds, likely from a flogging of a, by a leather strap, and a garter was twisted around her neck. One of the most gruesome things done to her was this, there was a stick rammed up her vagina. Yep. Which is just crazy and makes me cringe. Police Chief Krasnit... I can't pronounce things, so we're just going to have to go. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that one. He said it was the worst he had seen in 30 years on the department and stated that she was mercilessly beaten across the face. So her face was just destroyed. Yeah. That's terrible. Originally, her murder was thought to be drug-related and not linked to the other murders, but was later proven through investigation that that was not the case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, I don't know exactly where Pemberton Drive is. I know that it's off of Getty's Road, which is also where the barn is mm-hmm. and it's like i mean even to this day it's pretty wooded country isolated area mm-hmm. so it makes sense that he kept going back there because he was comfortable there he was comfortable it was easy to like hide things and then because of how vicious he is it's surprising that they were like oh this is drug related no it's the same psycho y'all <laughs> same psycho definitely so next we're going to talk about dawn by some she was one of the youngest victims that he had. She was born on November 28th of 1955. Mm-hmm. 
she was born to her parents, Louis and Cleo Basum, and she, her childhood was spent in Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti. Sorry. Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti. With an I. <laughs> she was 13 years old and had spent the day of April 15th, 1969, like any other day. Mm-hmm. She went to school at her East Junior High she School. She went to West. Oh, West. There were two. My mom went to East. She went to West. I'm sorry. She attended school at West Junior High School, and it was originally reported that she never returned home, but that was proven to be false. Mm -hmm. She returned home after her school day and ate dinner with her mother and brother, and then she went next door to her sister and brother-in-law's house, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Hess. John indicated to them that she was bored and wanted them to take her to a friend's house, Earl Kidd. Um, So her brother-in-law took her over and she hung out with Earl Kid for about an hour and with some other kids in the depot area. Yeah, depot town. It's what connects the east and the west side. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's a re- it's a really cool area. It's got some really nice restaurants and stuff and then there's like some cool Civil War history over there. Gotcha. So yeah, so that was about a mile from her home. Um, her mom had asked her to be home not too late. I think her curfew was like 8 o'clock. Yeah. So she started t- walking towards home around 7 with Earl Kid. And then once they reached about five blocks from her house, they parted ways. Dawn was last seen alive as she was walking down the New York Central Railroad tracks in the factory section of Ypsilanti. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, like, what's heartbreaking is, like, her best friend mm-hmm. was interviewed a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's this grown adult woman, they're same age as my mom, talking about her childhood best friend. And that... That was crushing to watch. That one was... So the area that she was last seen on was also a dirt road mm-hmm. that Collins had rode his micro- motorcycles up and down yep. daily, and Dawn was reported missing after failing to return home after her visit with her friend. On April 16th of 1969, Dawn Basim's body was found on the side of a lone country road by pa- by a passing truck driver. Mm-hmm. So now it's a truck driver just driving down the road, and he's going, do-do-do-do-do, honk, honk! Yeah. And then, oh... Darn it. Like, how terrible. You're just going about, like, your everyday work. Mm-hmm. And then you see this. And, and it's just, just 13. It's terrible. She was found half naked from the waist down. She had been raped and strangled. Um, her body had been slashed with a sharp cutting utensil and a handkerchief had been stuffed in her mouth. Her breast had been almost cut off. Yep. Which is just crazy yep. how ruthless this guy was. Yep. You okay? Yeah, she's 13. I know. She's 13. Yeah, she's a baby. Mm-hmm. She didn't deserve that. None, None of, of them, them deserved, deserved it. it. It's None just... of them deserve it, and it's absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, her distinct orange sweater was found at a deserted farmhouse, which was located less than a mile from where Mary Flesser's, Flessar's body was located. In the basement of the farmhouse, the police located an electrical cord that matched the kind that was used to strangle Dawn. Police determined that the co-ed slayer was likely using abandoned farmhouses as his killing ground. Police believed that Dawn had been lured into a car that then took her to an abandoned house that was partially burned down at the time that the killer had picked out long before she was murdered. Once they were at the farmhouse, she was taken to the basement where they had a struggle. There was broken glass, and it was assumed that Dawn attempted to make a run for it out into the farmyard. The murderer pursued her and caught up with her using an electrical cord that they had found at the farmhouse to strangle her. Good for her for fighting. Yeah. Good definitely. job, Dawn. Fight. <laughs> um, at this point, the killer was feeling more confident and 
decided to start taunting police. Isn't that a fun thing to do? What is with, like, serial killers and taunting the police? Like, not cool, like, but also thank you, because most of the time that helps figure it out. Yeah. But, like, why you gotta be like that? Can't answer that. Our minds don't work quite no, like we theirs. we do not work like <laughs> theirs. Obviously. Um, when the officers would return, return to the farmhouse to search for a second time, mm-hmm. they found clothes that had previously not been there. So he had returned there after the police had been there. Um, and then a short time after that, someone torched the place. Wonder who that could have been. Hmm, I wonder who would have done such a thing. And then lined up along the driveway, the cops found five lilac blossoms, which they assumed at the time was for the five girls that had been murdered already, including Jane, who they later found out wasn't associated with him. Well, I'm sure by that time, like, newspapers or whatever were claiming that she was part of it, and that's why he did that. But. Yeah. What a psycho. I know. Using pretty flowers. No, just kidding. Right? It's um, not bright. <laughs> <laughs> so our next victim was Alice Callum. She was actually born on Christmas Day in 1947. That's cool. She was born in Middlebury, Indiana, to her parents, and graduated from the University of Michigan in June of 1969 with a degree in fine arts, and she was enrolled to start in graduate school in the fall of 1969. Cool. Get it, girl. Yeah, and you go get that, Masters. <laughs> um, Alice went out to dinner with a friend and then was headed to the depot house for a party. Um, she was last seen departing this party around 2.30 a.m. with a strange man on the Sunday, yeah. June 8th. The, like, dear college women, or just, like, women in general, please do not leave places with guys that you don't know. Yeah. Like, just, like, don't, don't do that. I feel like it still happens. Like, we, like, we see it on TikTok where the girls are like, I hooked up with this dude last night. Like, yeah, don't do that. Just, just don't do it. Kara feels very passionate about this. Yeah, very passionate. Just don't do it. <laughs> so, on June 8th, 1969, Alice's body was found by some teenagers in a vacant field about seven miles north of Ann Arbor. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed multiple times and her throat was slashed. And lastly, she was shot in the head, which was, like, just another step of overkill over everything else that he had already done. Like, isn't it, like, a thing where after, like, it gets to a point where, like, the person, like, you've successfully murdered this person, but you keep going? Isn't that, like, a sign of excessive anger? Yes. So, like, Homepoint is real mad. Yes, definitely. Sorry. No. No, you're fine. It was believed that she was killed elsewhere and her naked body was abandoned in at that farmhouse her murder location was found by police as they were patrolling and it was found near earhart road and joy Mm -hmm. her shoes and coat buttons were found and they were stained with blood (sighs) this part's really sad column's father joseph was so stricken by grief as he lashed out at reporters at the sheriff's station when he arrived to claim his daughter's body he said i don't want her body i want her alive i didn't come here for her body He, he said and I'm not going to claim her body. I'm going to tell them not to go to the big university because it's way too big. They don't give a damn about anything but money and politics. And I'm not going to bury her. Let them bury her on the president's lawn. I worked too damn hard to raise her and send her here. I don't want her dead. That was what her father said about that. Mm. He did end up claiming her body and her body was buried up in Kalamazoo. You can't blame him. No, I know. 
like we already know that like the press in general like can be pretty ruthless when they have something they want to report on Mm -hmm. so not only is he just like grief stricken he just lost his daughter they're probably pestering him for a comment and the police department probably didn't give the poor man any answers i'm surprised that's all he said and did i would have to agree dang it's just (sighs) crazy there were several similarities that the police had to work with in their attempts to find this killer Four of the victims had a connection to Eastern Michigan University. Strangling was involved in four out of the five. All of the victims were white with brown hair, and all of their bodies were easily found, leading police to believe that the killer wanted them to be found, obviously. Mm -hmm. And mutilation of all the victims was present. Area police agencies had received hundreds of tips, but were no closer to solving the murder than they were in the first place. Um, Ann Arbor Police Chief Prasny stated that somewhere there was, must be a connection. Someone who must have one piece of information that could give them a break. Mm-hmm. Which it's always just that one piece of information that they're looking for that could really just right. set something overboard. And it's like, always comes from the most unexpected places. Like someone who doesn't think anything of like what they've seen or what they've heard. And yeah. then once they finally speak up, you're like, yes, thank you. Putting two and two together, man. Yeah. <laughs> so... Ypsilanti police were now under intense pressure from all of the people in town, obviously, because there were four murders in three months, which was causing panic. The police were getting frustrated, and they just hadn't had a chance to catch the killer. Yeah. They had people calling in hoaxes on the tip lines, which tip lines are very important. If you don't have an actual tip, don't call in. Like, another public service announcement. (laughs) Don't be a dick and call in with fake news. It's so true. Why do we have to say that? Because... It's another thing I feel passionate about. <laughs> um, one of these hoax writers actually wrote a letter stating that they needed to give money to the Detroit Catholic Churches, John Cardinal Darden. The writer stated that as a signal of the arrangement was agreed to, newscasters from WJBK-TV would mispronounce the name of the weather person Jerry Haddock on the date that the writer had specified. All of this was done... And nothing came of it. Which is just crazy because it wasted so much of the valuable resources and everything. Right? Like, time, resources, gave people false hope. Whoever did that, shame on you. I hope one day this podcast reads you and you feel like poop. Because you're poop. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) So, our next victim is named Roxy Phillips. I don't know if you know anything about her. She's in California. Mm-hmm. So we're traveling I do know across about this one. the country. Yup, I do know about this one. So on March 21st of 1952, Roxy Ann Phillips was born in New Mexico to her parents, Russell and Sylvia. Um, on June 30th of 1969, Roxy was going to mail a letter to her friend in Salinas, California, when she disappeared. Her body was later found on July 13th, so two weeks, in Pescadero Canyon, by a couple of boys who were looking for fossils. Now, as a rock goblin myself. Yes. Yes. I cannot imagine going do 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 rock rock rock. Oh. No. This is not a rock. N- not a rock. Not a rock. And they're boys, so they are super traumatized by being like do 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 rock 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 do 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 not a rock. And her body was in advanced decomposition because it's in California. In, in the summer, in a desert. Yeah, this is terrible. She was nude except for a pair of sandals, and a red and white cotton belt was wrapped around her neck. So, like, because 
communication between states and even um, like departments and things was not great at the time. Did they even know about this until, or did this come up much later? I don't recall. There's a little bit of stuff later on that I'll talk about where they kind of connected her in because they found some of her stuff in his car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. so that's like how they would figure it out. But leading up to that, they probably had no idea yeah. that there's this person on the other side of the country who suffered a similar fate. Yeah. Um, her body had been positioned by the killer so that it would need to be trudged through poison oak to get to her. Oh. And Roxy's possessions were found along Route 68. In an interview with Roxy's friend, it was learned that she had met a man named John who drove a silver Oldsmobile and went to college in Michigan and liked to ride motorcycles. Sounds oh. familiar. Hmm. hmm. Who do we know of that likes those things? <laughs> those, those things. Man. Am I allowed to swear on this thing? Yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> So after the murder of Alice, a crime center was set up in a, for a specific task force that was solely to find the co-ed murderer. Mm -hmm. um, all files were gathered and stored in, the, in a building on Washtenaw Avenue that was once a Catholic seminary. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, a citizens group called the Psychedelic Rangers, which is a phenomenal name, by the way. Like, which also very on brand for Ypsilanti... Being that it is a very uh, art-centered area, and our water tower is shaped like a dick, and in the 60s and 70s, you could buy postcards of our dick-shaped water tower with, like, tie-dye on the background. So, on brand! Good job! <laughs> on brand! So, this group of psychedelic rangers was outraged by the failures of the multiple police department task force, so they decided to act. They raised money and contacted a famous psychic, Peter Harkos. <laughs> Again, on brand, on brand. He was involved with helping to solve the Boston Strangler case, which I thought was quite interesting. Well, then I think after this, we're going to go down a rabbit hole on this fella. <laughs> oh, I've got some information about his, uh, oh, fantastic. his doodlings with this. Doodle doodles. So he was one of the most famous psychics in the world at the time. And the reason he is now psychic is because in 1941, at the age of 30, he fell off a ladder in the Netherlands. And started to have visions after he survived that four-story fall. It's called brain damage. But thank you. And then with his psychic powers, he was able to read people while being in their proximity or touching an object that was associated with them. Cool. All right. All right. <laughs> so he originally quoted a cost to the psychedelic rangers that was way out of what they had. But once oh, I'm he sure. Once he saw, like that this was a big case, he was like, all right, you can pay for me to come over there and I'll do it. All right, all right. Way to go, psychedelic rangers. Yes. So his cost of travel was covered and he came over. So he arrived on July 21st of 1969. He insisted that he could solve the case in a couple of days. Only to redact that later. Yeah, like maybe don't talk with like such confidence and gusto when you are unsure. Probably. Like, he came in with some BDE and ended up with some <laughs> LDE. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he also said that the killer was a genius and was taunting police. Obviously. I mean, Duh. valid. Duh. <laughs> like, good job on getting that one thing right. He said that the killer was five foot seven, blonde and baby-faced, about 25, 26 years old. 
136, 146 pounds-ish. Which, the guy we're talking about does not fit that description. Yeah, no. So, he also said that he drove a motorbike and went to school at night. The killer was associated in some way with a trailer. I'm associated some way with a trailer. I Are you? Ev- I mean... <laughs> no. Maybe very distantly. <laughs> like, I would have to dig in for that, but, like, probably. So, two days after arriving, Herkos received a call warning him that he would be responsible for another murder if he didn't leave. That co-ed killer is ballsy. And there was evidence that the co-ed killer went to the restaurant where Herkos was showcasing his abilities to eavesdrop and told his friends that he was a fraud. I would love to know which restaurant they were at because um, several of the restaurants in Ipsy, like in that time period, were still around while I was growing up. That's awesome. Several of them were still I did there. not see it listed, but... I'm going to have to find out. I'm sure I can find it somewhere. He had also received a note that sent him on a wild goose chase and raised everybody's hopes. <laughs> I mean, but on brand for co-ed killer. Yes. And then on July 27th, Herkos went on television and predicted that an arrest was imminent. Dun, dun, dun. He hoped that the killer was watching because he was going to re-describe him in a completely different way. <laughs> like, don't be a weenie. Now he changed his description to a six-foot-tall man with brown hair. That is not a baby-faced, blonde-haired guy. No. (laughs) No. Like, a little bit closer to the actual truth, but yeah. Very different. So unfortunately, the COVID killer was not watching. He was picking up his next victim on his motorcycle. Her disappearance put pressure on Herkos to deliver. As it should have. Police provided him with a photo, but it gave him no vibrations of anything to do with her. He, although, believed that there was something that bad that happened to her. Well, duh, if they're showing you a picture, obviously <laughs> something bad happened. He predicted that her body would be found on a roadway named Riverview or River Drive. In fact, several days later, that was actually found to be the case, because yep. she was on a Huron River Drive. Yep. That was about one mile from where her ghost was staying, as if in challenge to him. It was totally in a challenge. Oh my gosh. Wow. Upon hearing of the body's discovery, Herkos hit his face and said, Her face was beat, 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 and it was wrinkled like a monkey. What an I don't, analogy. I don't know what wrinkled like a monkey <laughs> would mean or what kind of image it's supposed <laughs> to create. What a weird description. All right. Yeah, he described the disposal site of her accurately but still did not name a killer. Okay, so, like, some of his skills and abilities are accurate. Mm -hmm. Like, he was able to... He's good at inferring things. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, like, not so much on the vision front, but maybe he's, like, I don't know, picks up. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of vibes. He's got some vibes. Some vibes. All the vibes. Not a vibe. (laughs) (laughs) I love that guy. (laughs) And then he was... Herkos was actually taken to the site... Where he didn't experience many vibrations and said the man that he saw was not an American and that he was associated in some way with a ladder. That was all that he envisioned. Sir, you're the one that was associated with the ladder. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what? Okay, so, like, in Ipsy, like, it closed this last year, Mm -hmm. was the Michigan Ladder Company. Which is cool. Which is cool, like... 
they made obviously ladders until like they did not survive the pandemic so shortly after like some like early 2021 they closed but anyways so it is located on the east side of the river that splits town and when you're driving into town you're driving in on huron river drive and you can easily get to the ladder company by going over a small little bridge Gotcha. It's like less than a quarter of a mile. So like may everyone maybe, was associated like with a everyone's ladder associated with a ladder if you live <laughs> on the east side of town. Okay. Uh, what a weird moment. And then one account holds that a girl came to Hercos's hotel at 1:30 in the morning one night and in the presence of three police officers, she said that she felt her boyfriend fit the description. She was really hesitant to like tell them anything cuz you know, it's her boyfriend. We like yeah, like, if he is, and you're telling on him, what's he going to do to you? And then if he's not, and you did all this, girl, you single. She said that his name was John Collins, and he rode motorcycles. <sighs> However, this was not an ind- indication that the investigation of Collins was prompted by such a report. Oh, it did explain the dramatic changes that Hercos' description of the killer. Okay, well... Makes sense. And also, homegirl, break up with him. He's a psycho. So did she show him a picture and he was like, I'm going to describe him now. Probably. Maybe. Or she, like, described him and he was like, I'm going to commit this to memory. He's, he's like, the vibes. <laughs> what a vibe. <laughs> the vibrations. Ah. Oh. The, the whole, like, vibe thing now is just going to be totally different for me. Every time someone be like, that's such a vibe, I'm going to be like, huh, vibes. <laughs> so now we're going to get into our main suspect, John Norman Collins. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> okay, I know, like, the listeners can't hear this, but we've reached me out as you're doing this <laughs> that your lights flickered, and I was like, <laughs> we're all going to die! <laughs> I hope not. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I hope not. So... John Norman Collins had a couple nicknames. Yes, he did. I do not like it when they give murder nicknames because it makes them feel cool. It does. It makes them feel cool and, like, puffs them up. Like, yeah, so I have a nickname. I'm cool man. Like, no, you suck. So, as you, we've been referencing, the co-ed killer is yeah. one of them. And then the Ypsilanti Ripper. Yep. What a name. Yeah, and then just, like, in general, in the area, we refer to these as the Michigan murders. Yep. So, like... Three very specific things that, like, are associated with such an icky man. With him. He sucks. So his childhood was not a good one, which is no, how which most is of norms. these start. Mm-hmm. Norms. So John Norman Collins was born in Windsor, Canada on yep. July 17th, 1947. Um, he was the youngest of three children. He had an older brother and sister. Yep. His parents split up real soon after he was born, and his father deserted the family. Dear men, don't desert your kids. They grow up to be psychos. Right. Soon after he was born, his mother remarried, and that marriage only lasted a year. In that year, there were records of abuse towards John by his stepfather, who threw him across a car to his mother and used him as a shield against a man with a gun. As a baby under one. Like, Like the trauma that that man sustained from that, that he, like, doesn't remember, but it's, like, there because your body holds on to that. Yeah. Is wild. Mm -hmm. Okay, like, another PSA, don't use a baby as a shield, dicks. (laughs) 
Um, and then after her second marriage ended, his mother's name is Loretta. Yep. She moved with her three children across the Detroit River into the United States. Yep. Um, she married a man named William Collins, and the family took on his surname. But there were eventually marital problems due to abuse and drugs, and the marriage dissolved. She yep. finds real winners. Like, super good job, Loretta. Good job. That's some skills. I'm picking out those men. So, Loretta ended up having to support her family while waiting tables at various amounts of restaurants throughout the area. Which makes sense. I mean, what at else least- are you going to do? And it's this, like, 60, 50s, 60s at this point. Like, Yeah. At least she was taking care of her family. Yeah. So. Like, she may have terrible taste in men, but at least she was trying. Yes. So, we'll move on to his high school years. As stated, he was a very handsome man and was not a stranger to the ladies. Yeah, like, if you look at pictures of him from when he was younger, you're like, I, that's a good-looking dude. And then you're like, you're a psycho. (laughs) But, like, he's a good-looking dude. Yeah. Um, He wrestled, played multiple sports, and was even an honor student. He was good in school. Yeah, I mean, because he's a genius, as we have already come to realize. Yeah. So, Collins graduated from St. Clement high school it is a catholic school in centerline which is just a little bit north of detroit yep he planned to one day become a teacher good golly that's a terrible idea (laughs) terrible oh my gosh no okay happy that never came to be but terrible idea an old high school girlfriend came out about john after his arrest stating that he was polite and had manners galore he would open doors for a lady and stand whenever a lady or older person entered the room. And then hinted that he was moody and seemed mad most of the time. Those are two different like, things. Two very, very different things. And, like, I think that shows how good he was at masking. hiding. Yeah, masking. Because, like, obviously based on what's happened to these women, he hated women. Yeah. Like, super angry. But, like, could fool anybody. Ugh. So we'll move on to his college years. Yeah. He actually began his college career at Central Michigan University. I didn't know that. Surprise! Surprise! And then later he transferred to Eastern Michigan University to study education in his journey to become a teacher. Yeah, so at the time, Eastern was one of the top schools for education. Fun fact, my mother and one of my aunt, well, both of my aunts, have education degrees from Eastern Michigan. That's awesome. <laughs> and then he joined Theta Chi Fraternity. Mm-hmm. He had a part-time clerical job in Eastern Michigan University's McKenney Hall, and he shared a house across the street with another man. Yep. His roomie mate. Yeah. He was known as an all-American boy by his peers. What? Which, like, what does that even mean? Ugh. And he was he raised... likes baseball. That's probably <laughs> what that means. And he was raised Catholic. His teachers found him to be a bright and attentive student, and even... When he moved to Eastern Michigan Universities, his teachers were impressed by his work progress. However, halfway through his first year, his grades started to slip. Like, I just want to barf when they're like, oh, he's so great. Barf. And then he began to commit petty thefts. Just for thrillsies. You know, just for funsies, I'm going to go do some petty theft. No one's going to know. It's going to give me a thrill. (laughs) Let's do it. No, barf. It was around this time that Collins met Andrew Manuel, and he realized he had a partner in crime for some of his escapades. Ew. They get to go do thefty thefts together. Gross. Best friends forever! BFF! 
What's your favorite thing to do together? Oh, you know, just go steal shit. Collins was expelled by Theta Chi fraternity after that, after he was suspected for so many petty thefts. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, he was stealing from his fraternity brothers, in addition to, like, other things, but, like, specifically, he was... And, like, you don't do that to your frat brothers. No, man. You guys are family. Like, I did not go Greek in college, but even I know you don't do that. Collins also had a large sexual obsession. Duh. Yes. Duh. No kidding. <laughs> Curiously, with a puritanical streak in his character, too. Well, yeah, growing up Catholic, you know. Yeah. Don't have sex. <laughs> Several girls reported how Collins would fly into a rage and quote the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. As one of the girls. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was dancing provocatively. Okay. Like. <laughs> Alright. In the 60s. They did not twerk. They did not grind. So what in the world could this woman have been doing. That was considered provocative. That he felt the need to yell that at her. I can't, Im- I can't imagine. The slight hip shimmy. Oh. Okay. A little, blah, 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 little shake. You guys can't see it, but I'm shaking my hips. <laughs> what? That's wild. But he was also described as a bondage freak. <laughs> Which, okay, obviously based on what he did to these women. Yes. What a dick. This may have stemmed from an incident where he discovered his pregnant sister with another man. He beat the man unconscious and then hit his sister until she bled, calling her a tramp as he did so. What a... Like... Ah! ah. Gives me the heebs. Gives, yes. Like, one, girl, you pregnant. But also, dude, none of your business. You close the door and you walk away. <laughs> okay, you put the hand on the doorknob and you pull it. And then you turn around and you walk away and go drink some water. There you go. Problem <laughs> solved. <laughs> Just leave it alone. Jeez. Collins also had a strange nephrophiliac. Obsession. Okay, again, obviously, because he kept going back to visit the bodies. I just got the dogs upset. (laughs) (laughs) Almost being caught several times returning to his scenes. A trait that was was shown by many other serial killers. Yes. Which, like, why? I get that it, like, you know, gives them their jimmies, and they're like, ha ha, I did this. This is so cool. I'm a cool man. I did the things. But, like, gross. Yeah. Ew. Um, a lot of modern day crime writers actually overlook him as even like anything. Which like why? He's terrible. He did really terrible things. Mm-hmm. He obviously had a lot of rage and then parts of the story that you're going to get into makes it really really intriguing. Why are they skipping over him? Talk about it. Yeah, It's wild. <laughs> this is why I was like have you heard about this? And you were like no. And I was like how have you not heard about this? <laughs> Um, he should have graduated in 1969, but he was 24 credits short and didn't give a flying flip if he finished or not. I'm like, you spent all that money to go to school, and you're just not... Dude, I was in such a hurry to get out. <laughs> oh. He was also involved in a grand theft, where he wrote a bad check for a camper trailer and took it to California in June of 1969. Hmm, we know something that happened in June of 1969 in California. He never returned the trailer, and the name on the check was from a student who had his wallet and ID stolen. Ugh, barf. (laughs) John Norman Collins was treated for a rash of poison oak the week that Roxy went missing. Hmm. Suspicious. 
Don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. He's sus. And soon after the murder of Roxy, John returned to Michigan. Yep. Which, like, <laughs> you did a thing, it was bad, you got poison oak for it, we'd get out. Yep. The fact that you had to be treated for it was just crazy. Right? He couldn't suffer in silence, right? man. Right. And he did have a trailer. Yeah. The one wackadoodle... Dude, that the psychedelic people got. He had the trailer. He right? knew about the trailer. So now we're going to get into some character stories about him. Yeah. Oh. One former girlfriend remembered a time when Collins had been walking her across campus and he began to fondle her. So attractive in the middle of campus. I really just walking across the quad really want my boob to be touched. <laughs> Suddenly, he held her away and was angered and asked her. Are you in your period? Oh, that's right. I forgot that he... She admitted that she was. And he goes, that is disgusting. I and for... gawked off. I forgot that he was completely disgusted by menstruation. And that is why he would shove things up women's vaginas. Oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> oh, man's disgusting. Another co-head recalled riding with him near some wooded areas. When they stopped to rest under a tree and they were alone, he asked her if she'd be scared if he was the co-head killer. And she could be the next victim, he said. Well, that's comforting. She thought he was kidding, but with a serious expression on his face, it made her uneasy. Yeah, no kidding, homegirl. Run. Yeah, right? Also, like, don't ride with guys with motorcycles. If we have learned anything from this, don't hitchhike, don't take rides from strangers, and don't take rides from guys with motorcycles. Heck, awful. No matter, hitchhiking, really. No matter how dreamy he may be, don't do it. <laughs> a girl who said she met a man that looked like Collins when he accosted her from his car remembered him saying that he couldn't stand girls with pierced ears because that left holes in their bodies and it defiled them. Man. Yeah, he, he would not like me. No, me either. <laughs> no, me either. So it's, like, amazing to me that in the descriptions of, like, what you found about the victims, mm -hmm. that they don't mention that he would literally rip the earrings out of their ears because he was so disgusted. Yeah. This man sucks. Um, he had told a girl that if a man had to kill, he killed. And if he said it was right for him to do it, then he had to do it. The perfect crime, he told her, was when there was no guilt. Without guilt, a person could not get caught. What a cocky douchebag. <laughs> I hope that someone shoved something up him one day. <laughs> so have you ever heard of the McDonald triad? I have not heard of the McDonald triad. Oh. See, I love this. You're like, join me things that I didn't know about. So this is an indicator of some behaviors that may lead to someone being a serial killer. It's not proven, but may lead to it. Okay. Okay. So the triad is cruelty and abuse to animals. Yep. Fire setting. All right. And bedwetting. Oh, okay. And Colin showcased all of these behaviors throughout his life. He once told a girl that he strangled a cat. Don't doubt it. He burned down many barns during his murder sprees. Yep. And he wore diapers till the age of five at school. Which is unfortunate. That is really unfortunate. Due to his traumas and all that from when he was a child. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Oh, that's, yeah, that's terrible. He believed that he could get away with murder. Just in virtue of the fact that he decided that it was the right thing to do. 
He was organized and had sexual rage beyond his control. So, like, as someone, like, he grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. Like, probably super Catholic, considering he graduated from a Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that there is no reason that murder is okay. No. I, I don't believe so. Like, I'm pretty sure Catholicism is against that, no matter which way you look at it. Yeah. This guy sucks. There's an exception for him. Oh, because he's special. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to get into our last victim and John's downfall. Karen Sue Bainman. She was born on February 10th, 1951. She was born to her parents, Roland and Marjorie, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She attended through Michigan University, where she was a freshman. On July 23rd, 1969, 18-year-old Karen went to a wake shop in Ypsilanti around 1 p.m. Yeah, that wig shop was on Michigan Ave in, like, the downtown area. Oh, really? Yeah. While at the wig store, Karen had a conversation with the store clerk. Yep. And the conversation went a little something like this. I have got to be the dumbest or bravest girl, because I've just accepted a ride from that guy. (laughs) Okay, again, friends out there in the world, remember, we don't accept rides from people we don't know. We don't (laughs) go home from parties with people we don't know. We don't go home from the bar with people we don't know. And, like, I get it. Like, you want to, like, date people and find the right person. But, like, date them during the daylight and meet them places. In her defense, this is during the day. This is during the day, but she accepted a ride from a stranger. So, like, maybe (laughs) don't do that. Like, meet them if you want to date them. But, like, don't accept rides from strangers. Yep. And we got to remember that the 60s were a different time. Yes. (laughs) That, too. So the woman at the wig shop had gotten a good look at the man seated on the motorcycle on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. At Karen's request, because she was like, it's a little sketchy, but I'm going to do it anyway. After saying this, Karen left the store and with the unknown person, and they drove off with her on the back of the motorcycle. The motorcycle was believed to be a Honda 450. And very shiny with lots of chrome. Ooh, chrome! (laughs) Karen was reported missing by her roommate Sherry Green when she failed to return home for their dinner date. Yep. Which, that would be so sad. That would be really, really sad. Police began to search around the clock until July 27th when a doctor and his wife were walking and found Karen's body in a wooded gully on Riverside Road in Ann Arbor Township. Similar to the other killings, it appeared that Karen had been killed elsewhere and her body was dumped. She had been raped, strangled, beaten, and her breast and stomach were scalded with some sort of caustic liquid. Ugh. Oh my gosh. Makes my tummy hurt. Yep, I don't like it. Karen's panties were wadded up and shoved up her vagina. Ah, this guy and putting things in things where they should not go. Detectives found that the garment was covered in short clipped hairs from someone other than the victim. When Karen's parents were notified, her father, Roland, had been hospitalized from shock. Which I'm surprised more parents weren't actually, like, shocked. Like, how come we only, like, they only talk about the two dads? Like, the this dad who was shocked and then the other girl's dad that, like, was like, I don't want my daughter dead! Like, the other parents had to have had some sort of reaction. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. These were just the ones that were mostly written about. Yeah. That probably happened in public or, like, were at least noted somewhere. Yeah. So investigators obtained a list of all Honda 450s that were in the state and began the tedious process of looking for the killer. Can you imagine being, like, the administrative assistant going, no, no, on this list, just checking them off? Like, the ones, like, in the UP. (laughs) Obviously it was not them, if you can, like, verify that they did not go over the bridge. Along with the information from the wig store clerk, 
There was another girl student that was interviewed and described a good-looking man on a Triumph motorcycle that tried and failed to give her a lift. Police now had a good description of their suspect, but could not find him. As soon as Sheriff Harvey heard of the discovery of Karen's body, he ordered a complete news blackout. The reason for this was that the police theorized that the killer was returning to the bodies, and in some sort of ritual. Which we already know he likes to go back. Twice before, police had attempted to do a total news blackout, but were thwarted by news hounds. So they had to, like, keep this on the down low. Like, dear media, every once in a while, you just need to slow your roll and let the police do what they need to do. Every once in a while. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So things that the police do know. That there were multiple geographic similarities between the murders. Yes. Many of the victims lived near EMU and or disappeared from there. Yep. Many of the students had indicated that he prowled the campus. Yep. Six of the seven bodies were found in rural areas between Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. And five body dump sites were formed a tight circle. Yep. A comfort zone, if you will. Yeah. He had a little area that he liked. Only Jane Mixer's body was found outside the area, which was later her being eliminated from his because the nurse did it. And the only other odd one was the one out in in California, which he just used to get out of town for a bit. The five dump states close together indicated that he traveled back and forth in this area and knew it well. An abandoned farmhouse showed evidence that at least two of the victims had been killed there. Possibly more. Probably all of them. Yeah. Home sweet home, if you will. God, I hate this guy. (laughs) The murderer left most of the bodies out in the open. In kind of like lover's lane. Oh my gosh, I love it. Where they would be discovered easily, except for Mary Flazar, who was found. She was there for like months. Yeah, for a month, yeah. However, the killer returned and apparently moved her around as if to make her easier to discover. She was dumped 150 feet from the road. Jones Snell. Don't. Jones Sal appeared to have been stored in a root cellar, perhaps at that farm site, before being dumped 12 feet from the road. And covered in grass. So, like, when he's done, he moves them somewhere where they're going to be seen. Yeah. So the police can find him. Hate this guy. After that, the killer made no effort as if he wanted to have the bodies found right away. And the suspect obviously had a car to transport the bodies. Yeah, which would, like, make sense because he's moving them around. But he also used his vehicles to pick up chicks for rides. Yes. And all victims were white with brown hair. Yep. Um, when Karen was reported missing, they generated a sketch with the wig shop owner. Okay. Who actually made a really good sketch that kind of looked just like him. There was also a young campus police officer, Larry Matheson, who was starting to put together a suspect profile. There's an interview with him mm-hmm. from, like, 2010-ish, and it's mm-hmm. really good. Because um, he was still an Eastern student at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was still a student, and he's just slowly putting it together. Go him. Yeah, it's amazing. So following Karen's death, Sheriff Harvey was notified that Karen's body was found in his office personally and then had minimal personnel on the scene because they were doing that media blackout. Oh, yeah. So they put a plan in place that when they moved the victim, they would put a mannequin in that spot. Okay. Because he was returning to it. Yeah. Because, so, you know, freak. So Washtenaw County Prosecutor William Delhay personally approved this plan. Thought it was a great idea. Most wonderful. Best plan ever. (laughs) So six detectives from the sheriff's department and the state police staked out the murder scene on Saturday, July 26th. Two of them were in vehicles and the 
others were on foot. At approximately midnight, a lone male was observed walking down Riverside Drive. It was raining outside, and it was kind of hard to see, and it was unusual for someone to be walking, like, at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. So the man entered the ravine, and the officers obviously felt that they had their man because he was, like, really close to the mannequin. Almost could touch it. Yeah. But the guy discovered it wasn't the body he thought it was. So he actually bolted through the woods, and the detectives tried to pursue him, but they lost him. I mean, at least they attempted. Good job for trying. Word of the incident got to the press. Of course it did. And the officers were criticized. Of course they were. Prosecutor Delhay did state that it was possible that the man was just a passerby who was frightened by the shouts of the detectives. Although it seems unlikely due to circumstances. Well, yeah, because what dude is going to be out walking around at 1 a.m.? Yeah. A killer. Prosecutor Delhay stated, obviously, we didn't have enough personnel on the scene. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't chuckle, but like, duh. But we couldn't really flood the area with officers, or the suspect might have seen them. Which is also fair. Okay, fair, but also it's a very wooded area, you put them in trees, like, I don't know. What are you gonna do, have them Camo. jump out of the tree, break a leg? I mean, that seems counterproductive. <laughs> Val- valid point. Alright, alright, bad idea. This is why I'm not in police force. <laughs> While the detectives received criticism for not apprehending a man, the man, it was noted that the suspect approached the body while in a densely wooded area in a steady rainfall, which is a little bit sus. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Yeah, and the area was also swampy and made it easy for him to evade capture because yeah. he knew the area. Yeah, like he would know how to run and get out of all of that so that people can't find him. Yep. So after the failure to capture the suspect, Governor... Milliken invoked a small, little-used law, which gave full jurisdiction to the Michigan State Police. Okay. Which made the local police officers be like, really? Yeah. We're trying real hard, man. Like, why you gotta be like that? So, yeah, they felt like they weren't trusted by the governor. Yeah, but after, like, everything that's happened, it makes sense. Well, they were, the Michigan State Police were still involved in this. They were just not. Yeah. So maybe, eh, might have been a good idea. Who knows? Yeah, 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 yeah. So then suspicions really start to ramp up. So Larry Matheson was acquainted with John Norman Williams, and had ar- who had already been questioned. Yeah. A few times. Yeah. Um, he had seen Collins cruising around the day Karen went missing. Yep. He had brought a photo of him to a former girlfriend who said, yeah, she'd seen Collins driving around campus too. Matheson took it to a girl who had noticed the make of the motorcycle and also identified him as well. So everybody's just kind of identifying him as, like, the guy. Get it, Larry Matheson. So Matheson was an, was inexperienced with murderers, however. And when he showed up at Collins' house, it gave Collins a little bit of a leadway before yeah. actual detectives got there so yeah. he could get rid of some evidence. Yeah. So Collins' housemate, Arnold Davin, recalled that John had taken a box that was covered with a blanket out of his room. And Davis had held the door open for him and he spotted shoes, rolled jeans, and a handbag. And when John returned to the house, it was no longer there, and he had burned it. Okay. So, they had put him under surveillance, but nobody could stop him from making his car squeaky clean. Yeah. But some guys just don't know how to clean. Yeah. I'm going to go with he probably doesn't know the best way to do it. Some information leading up to his arrest. Corporal Lee was away on vacation, and Collins was taking care of his German shepherd while they were out of town. Side note here, Leek is Collins' uncle. The twist. (laughs) 
Three days after Karen's body was discovered, Corporal Leak became suspicious of his nephew. When he returned home from vacation in his basement, floor was splattered with black paint. I mean, did you give him permission to remodel? Probs not. Probs not. Probs not. Leak later was told that Collins had been questioned in connection to the killings already. Upon investigation, Leak found what appeared to be blood splatter under the paint, which was later tested to be found out to be varnish. So, at least it wasn't all blood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got that much going for him. Because of his suspicions, though, Corporal Leak reported his nephew to the Michigan State Police. Leak didn't really want to tell his wife right away because that was her sister's son. Yeah, then, yeah. I kind of get that, and she kind of looked at Collins as her own son, so that makes sense. Yeah. Collins had used his uncle's basement as a discreet place to murder basements, I tell ya. <laughs> Alright, going in the basement. This next... Right point is like crazy yeah the leak family's next door neighbor heard a tortured screams of a young female on the evening of july 23rd 1969 and then a couple days later they saw him carrying a box out of the house like like wouldn't you call the police if you hear someone screaming i would (laughs) i definitely would yeah that part kind of stuck out to me i was like you heard her screaming but you didn't do anything Man, the 60s were a wild time. They were wild. Wild. <laughs> wild. And later, that gentleman that we talked about earlier, Arnold Davis. Yes. That box that he was talking about was yeah. the box that he was seen leaving his uncle's house with. So those were all Karen's items. Oh, good golly. What a winner. <laughs> Once the Michigan State Police began to investigate the basement, blood and hair were discovered under the family washing machine, as well as a set of fingerprints in the paint. Which they knew he was already in the house. They just didn't know the blood and the hair was going to be there. What an idiot. Um, Colin's car, his 1968 Oldsmobile Cutlass, was searched by police and blood and hair samples were taken from the car and found to match Karen. So lots of DNA evidence for Karen. Which is like wild that they had like the technology to do that in 1968. Yep. Good job, 1968 on that much. The next morning, Leek found his wife on the phone with Collins, and once she hung up, he told her that her nephew was most certainly the co-ed killer. Yep. This made her devastated. Oh, yeah, because, again, she loved him and thought of him as a son. Yeah. And then he had been in their home several times, even murdered somebody in their home. That would be devastating for anybody. He was watching their (sighs) pup-pup. So, John Norman Collins, roommate, Arnold Davis, Mm -hmm. remembered an incident where he was one of the three men in the car with Joan Cell when he picked her up, and he didn't know who she was at the time. Can you think, if, if you were Arnold Davis, can you think back and go, well, darn it, he was with her. Can you imagine how much guilt that guy carries? Probably quite a Probably bit. Probably a ton of guilt. He stated that she had made plans to get together with Collins once the other men were out of the way, and that Collins later claimed that he had left her in an empty parking lot because she was sexually uncooperative. No means no. Like, not that hard. She says no. She means no. Leave her alone. It also turned out that Colin's office was across the hall from Mary Flazar's and often visited friends who lived across the hall from a unit where Marilyn Skelton lived. Wow! So many connections. They're drawing it together. They're doing a great job. It's like he kind of stalked these women. Yeah. Um, Continuing investigations revealed that he was a chronic thief. Yep. Suffering from rage. Yep. Usually directed at females who somehow managed to piss him off. Mm-hmm. Ex-lovers described him as oversex and sometimes brutal. Yeah. 
He's the disgusting one. Yeah. On the afternoon of July 31st, 1969, Lee Police Captain Walter Stevens went over to John Norman Collins' home and informed him that he was the prime suspect. And after giving him the evidence, Collins burst into tears. The policeman expected him to confess, but instead he said, I don't know anybody named Karen. What a dick. <laughs> so then he was arrested, right? Yep. So okay. he was placed under arrest after that. So an interesting fact that going through all this, I'm going to go that you didn't pick, didn't find out or pick up on, which might be because the reason why I know this is because my grandmother worked at the university at the time mm-hmm. in McKinney. So mm-hmm. she was in the same building. Um, he was trying to help, in quotation marks, the police with the investigation throughout most of this time. Of course he was. Because psychopath. Always gotta help. Always gotta help. Try and find that murderer. You know, you're the murderer. I gotta know what they know. Yeah, pretty much like covering his own butt, but also... I hate people. Okay. Yeah, so there's that other fun tidbit. I like it. Ugh. So now we're gonna get into the trial and where he is now. Yeah! So, preliminary exam which is held on August of 1969 in front of Judge Edward Deke. Judge Deke found that the murder had been committed and there was probable cause that Collins probably did it. Yeah, yeah, he did. The only murder that he was being prosecuted for was Karen's because there wasn't enough evidence in any of the other ones. Collins denied that he killed Karen to his attorneys, Richard Ryan, stating that he had never even met her. Lies! It's kind of odd to say you never met somebody when you were seen with her, but... And, like, you do you, bro. Like, eyewitnesses saw that you were with her and picking her up. Then you got your arraignment. Yep. Which was on September 5th of 1969. An arraignment is where the defendant enters a plea of guilty or not guilty or no contest. And there is an issue of bail and then they determine future court dates. Oh, I did not know what that meant. So now I do know. Yes. And, I mean, we can probably guess what he said. He was not Not guilty. guilty. And then his court dates were set and all that fun jazz. So, yeah, I had what to look up what an arraignment was just so I yeah. could better explain yeah. it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy you did, because I never knew that. And then we're getting into the trial. The murder trial of John Norman Collins turned out to be the longest in Washtenaw history. Yeah, I don't doubt that. It opened up in Washtenaw County Court in Ann Arbor on June 2nd of 1970 before Judge John Conlin. Collins was only charged with the murder of Karen. The prosecutor, William... Delhay focused only on the murder of Karen, for which they had the physical evidence, and the defense lawyer was Joseph Louisel from nearby Detroit. Collins' mother had originally hired Richard Ryan, but Ryan had begun to have doubts about his client and asked him to take a polygraph test. Don't I mean, ever take a polygraph the, test. I mean, he was doing it off the record. But they're still not... But, like, still. I wouldn't take a polygraph If I... <laughs> Not if, because I wouldn't do anything like this. But, like, I would, because I didn't do it. Yeah, but if you even have, like, this little inkling, any little stress will make it go... Oh, I would be too stressed. And then it would, like, read that you were guilty, and then you'd be like, well, I didn't do it! That's true. Do you know the guy who wrote Wonder Woman also developed the polygraph test? I did not. Yeah, fun fact! So, after he took his uh, polygraph test... Ryan refused to disclose what happened, but he was not pleased with the results. Yeah, I wouldn't be either. I would not be either, and I'd be like, hey, you know what? I'm a go. Thanks. So he suggested that changing Colin's defense to a diminished capacity plea, which means he crazy. I might not have done it, but I did do it, and I'm nuts. Yeah, like I did it, but I don't know why I did it. 
because I am not completely mentally healthy. So Colin's mother was thrilled. And by thrilled, I mean outraged and fired him on the spot. Oh, yeah. Replacing him with a much more expensive lawyer, the canny Joseph Louisel and his partner, Neil Fink. Fink outlined the prosecution strategy, establishing the, that the accused had been cruising in Ypsilanti in the afternoon of July 23rd, and that he had been posi positively identified as riding around with Karen from 12.30 to 1, with her time of death being established later in the afternoon, but no later than 3. And the trace evidence had confirmed that Karen's presence in the basement of the Leak home, in which only the accused had access to. Mm -hmm. He did it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yo dog, you did it. The defense strategy was to get evidence and testimony thrown out and to establish the alibi for Collins that afternoon. I feel like the prosecution's got a better case here. Yeah, you know what? I think I think you might be right about this. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think so. The evidence for the prosecution rested mainly on the hair found, and a graduate chemist did a little testy test on it, and the hairs in the basement were found to be an identical match to those in the panties. <laughs> Which, did you know that hairs that they're talking about were from Leek's son after doing, like, haircuts and stuff. In the basement before they went on vacation. Yep. Gross. Evidence was heard starting on July 20th, and there was little rebuttal from Collins or any of his yeah. staffy staff. Yeah. I mean, what could they say? Like, the, there's <laughs> nothing he could say. There was a number of main prosecution witnesses that testified during the trial. Diane Gosh, who was the owner of the wig shop yeah. in which Karen was last seen. Dave, Arnold Davis... The self-described best friend of Collins. I would not want to describe myself as the best friend of John Norman Collins, but thank you for coming. Um, he said Collins gave him a knife for safekeeping, which Davis did turn over to detectives. Well, that's good. Uh, thank you for Pat doing that. on the that. back, friend. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Collins tried to use Davis as an alibi, saying that they were out riding motorcycles together that afternoon. He was like, no, I don't remember that, but thank you. Like, nah, dog, we didn't do that. And then Corporal Leake and his wife, Sandra, testified about Collins using their home when they were on vacation and the evidence that led to his arrest. And a former girlfriend spoke on all of the motorcycles that he owned. Yeah. The defense challenged several of the eyewitness accounts and yeah. saying that their memories might have failed them. The persecution faced was evidence of police harassment and manipulation of witnesses. Still, they were proven to be credible. Yeah. So that's good. That is really good. Overall, there was 57 witnesses. 57? Over 17 days of testimony. That's just a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Like, that's... I'm guessing that's between both sides, but I'm guessing a majority of them were prosecution people. Like, that makes me wonder how many witnesses were in the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. I'm sure we could Google it at some point. We're going to find that out, because now I need to know, because 57 is excessive. The defense team was uncertain if they were going to let Collins testify, but Fink wanted to risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> risk it for the biscuit alright I like it he felt the jury would wonder why Collins was not willing to proclaim his innocence I mean I would wonder that if I were sitting on that jury and he didn't talk I'd be like he did it that, <laughs> he did it Collins was willing to do so but he proved that he could not stand up to Fink's prosecution role playing as he burst out into anger and it alarmed his attorneys which we already know he has anger issues so makes sense they decided to ask the judge to allow Collins to confer with his mother in private, and she would decide whether he would be able to take the stand. Mother knows best. <laughs> Ooh. 
Um, but mother knows better. <laughs> but they were together in the judge's chambers for nearly half an hour. And when the door opened, Loretta Collins came out. Her face was puffy from crying, and she groped her way down the corridor, wearing a stunned expression that told the lawyers that she had learned something she did not want to know. And Collins followed out with his eyes all red. So he admitted to what he did to his mom. And, like, when you go back and you look at the news article clippings over the 17 days, I'm assuming prior to this, she was, like, steadfast that her baby boy would never do this. And then you learn that your baby boy is a psycho. When the judge asked if the defense had any more witnesses, Louis L. said no and both sides rested. So he did not... Oh, right. So he didn't... Well, probably for the best because obviously he has too much anger issues and he didn't. So despite objections from the defense, the jury was swayed by the prosecution's arguments. The closing arguments, they both appealed to common sense, each using the concept of contradiction with the other side. Over drinks, Louis L. admitted that he believed the jury was going to return a verdict against his client. So he already Well, at least be- he knew. Yeah, he like, already does, believed Does it. he get paid either way? Like, I'm, I'm I would assuming. assume so. So he, I mean, like... Yeah, there's only certain knew. lawyers where you don't get paid when you don't. Yeah, like, he already knew. And then on August 19th of 1970, after three days of deliberation, the trial found that Collins was unanimously guilty of the murder of Karen, the only victim out of the seven that Collins was convicted for. Did Mm-hmm. He sucks. So sentencing was held on August 23rd of 1970, where he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years served with hard labor. It's a hard knock, knock life. life. Good. <laughs> Good that he got hard labor. I don't necessarily know what that means or if that's something that even stands still. Probably even, Like, even thinking about, like, maybe early 2000s, that may not have been a thing anymore, even in the 90s. But I hope that he had to do something for at least the 70s and the 80s that involved, like, <laughs> dragging cement bricks around. Yeah. When the sentence was announced, he stated that I never knew a girl named Karen. I never took the life of a girl named Karen. These were the only words that he uttered publicly about the murder at the time. I mean, if it looks like a potato and it smells like a potato, it's probably a potato. I'm gonna go with he's a potato. Obviously. There was a grand jury indictment against him for the murder of Roxy Phillips, who had been seen with Collins on his vacation in California. Yeah. Despite his endeavors to scrub his vehicle, they found a piece of the fabric of Roxy's dress in his car. Man, he sucks at cleaning. And then California ultimately declined to extradite Collins. Which, I mean, fair enough, he's living out the rest of his life in prison. Why bother? I saw an interesting little tidbit that I don't know if it's true or not, but yeah. I thought it was interesting. Um, Michigan had inquired about getting her fingerprints so they could compare it to some of the stuff in his car. Apparently, they sent her entire hand instead of fingerprints. I don't know if it's true or not. I saw it in some of my research, but I thought it was interesting. But also, 60s were a wild time, probably. <laughs> Well, you have the fingerprints, I guess. Yeah, and, like, didn't he already chop off a hand? So maybe it was, like, the hand that was just chilling. Like, I don't... That's an odd one. California's weird. (laughs) Michigan's weird. 1960s were weird. Everything's weird. Yeah, and this is just a nightmare. Prison and after sentencing. (laughs) He began serving his sentence at Southern Michigan Prison in Jackson. And then he was transferred to Marquette Prison in 1977. Yep. And then in January of 1980... He was returned to Ann Arbor, where he was admitted to the University of Michigan Hospital for a fractured skull. I'm going to go with homeboy got in a lot of fights in prison. He fell down on some ice during exercise time. I was hoping it was more exciting. So he recovered at the hospital and then was returned to prison up north. 
So he was at Marquette Prison while I was in college at Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan. The You're prison just all is over on, the place, man. Yeah, the prison is right on the outside of town, and we drove by it on the way in. <laughs> there was a movie that was be- partially filmed in yeah. Ann Arbor about the murders. Yeah. And it starred Victoria Bailey as one of the victims, and John Purley played the role of Collins, although the names were all changed for legal purposes, which, obviously. like, makes sense. The movie cost over a million dollars to make, and parts of the movie were filmed in Southern California, where Collins had killed Roxy. Okay, makes sense. The film was named Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, and the script was based on the book of the Michigan Murders. The film was actually never completed, which is unfortunate, because it would have been interesting. That would have been a very interesting movie, especially if it stayed close to the book and what actually happened. Like, what a bummer that they didn't finish it. Collins was interviewed in prison about the movie project, and he said it would jeopardize his freedom in the appeal process. Yeah, because he's constantly been in appeals. Yeah. The producer of the movie, William Martin, stated that if he wanted them to stop production, he had to take a lie detector test and pass it. Which, of course, he never did. But the movie never got done anyway, so. Lame. The prison escape in 1979. Yeah. Attempted. I don't think it actually... Attempted prison escape from a maximum security prison in Marquette. And I think it was him and two other guys. Uh, Six. Collins, along with six other inmates, dug a two-foot-wide tunnel over 19 feet underneath the prison. (laughs) The prisoners were 25 feet from freedom when a guard found their tunnel. That's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that they got that far. It's unfortunate all around. Yeah. For all the parties. Yeah. In the early 1980s, he changed his name to Chapman. Yes. His mother's maiden name. Many sources who knew the convicted killer said that he was trying to be associated with Mark David Chapman, murderer of the late John Lennon from the Beatles. His mother died in 1988, and he applied numerous times to be transferred to a Canadian prison. All requests were denied. Of course, because he sucks. Collins is now in probably his mid-70s and is currently serving a life was serving a life sentence in Marquette, but Collins was later moved to Ionia Correctional Facility, which is located in Ionia, Michigan, between Grand Rapids and Lansing. Unfortunately, the murders of the other six girls, Mary, Joan, Alice, Roxy, Dawn, and Marilyn, remain officially unsolved. Upon looking into Mary Flizar, I stumbled across her favorite quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. The future belongs to those who believe that the beauty in their, of the beauty in their dreams. This quote highlights the loss of the women in this story. Their lives were snuffed out before they could live to fulfill their dreams. Yeah, this guy sucks. Doesn't that, like, just break your heart? It does, and then I'm also low-key pissed that he's still alive. Yeah, well, he's getting up there in age. Yeah, so he's, like, getting older. But, yeah, like, you took away the lives of so many young women, and you're just chilling in prison now. Well, that's the story of the Michigan murders. Michigan murders. Depressing thing that happened in my hometown. Thank you for joining me today, Kara. Thank you for having me. Um, what a delight. <laughs> if you can say that. I'm what a talk. bummer slash delight. Yes, exactly. Okay. Bummer slash delight. I enjoyed sharing um, a little bit of Ypsilanti history with you. I appreciate it. I, there's a lot of things I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a learning experience cool for all. place where things happened. Okay. Cause like one cool note thing that happened in Ypsilanti. Uh, there is a building in Depot Town that was a dormitory during the Civil War, but also part of the Underground Railroad. So, like, good things do happen in Ypsilanti, but also this happened. And that's the Michigan murders. Um, 
I'm going to tease next episode. What are you talking about in your next episode? So I'm just going to give some hints. I'm okay. going to tell you. Okay. Okay. The state is Ohio. Okay, makes sense. It's the first recorded serial killer of Ohio. Oh. He used his stove to hide the evidence. And he was hung for his crime I'm... in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, I have no idea who this is. I, okay. I need so to So you'll out. have to tune in next time. I will. Because now I live in Toledo and I need to know. She's, I'm just following Kara around, I guess. We moved a lot. And I went really far away for college. Thank you, Kara. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.